Kind of a weird week for baseball. And MLB's Twitter account didn't help that very much, did it? Uh, no, it did not. (laughs) MLB's new slogan, not doing ourselves any favors. Uh, it's embarrassing at this point. I want to know who let Josh Hader get the reins to the Twitter account, man. In a little while, we're going to have an interview with Expanded Roster Editor-in-Chief Kelly Wallace. She was great. So kind to come on and talk to us for 50 minutes about yelling about socialism and baseball and about that awesome project, Expanded Roster, which, if you don't know, is a new website which is about to announce its launch date, focusing on intersectionality, focusing on feminism, Um, focusing on writers of color and basically all the stuff that stodgy baseball media misses. Uh, Yeah, we had a really nice time talking with her about that project and just about about all the other ways that baseball is messed up and how how we're all single-handedly going to fix it. So that was enjoyable. I felt weirdly optimistic after the conversation with her, even though we were talking about all of the stuff that makes me cynical about baseball. I know, me too. Like just talking about like expanded roster itself, right? And how you kind of shift the paradigm a little bit. I was like, okay, like maybe there there are some things that are getting better. Yeah. But before we get to that, uh, we're going to talk about a few things that happened this past week. Just kind of rapid fire them. Uh, I'm Bobby Wagner. I'm Alex Paisley. And this is a new episode of Tipping Pitches. So Alex... Bobby. My Mets rant last week, it was cathartic, but also it's had some residual effects on me. I just, I don't feel good about anything that's going on in New York. And since we talked last, almost like immediately after our episode came out. <laughs> of course, because that's, because that's how these things work, right? Yeah. Oh, always. This is how these things works. Noah Syndergaard, <laughs> hand, foot and mouth disease. Oh, that's incredible. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is Tell me this is not the Met, most Mets thing that has ever happened. I saw the notification come in and I was like, what's the disease? Like, so he just got a disease on his hand, his foot and his mouth. <laughs> um, I was like, I do not want to know what's going on at that kid's camp, man. I don't even know. I, I still don't really even know what that is. I had a friend from high school text me and be like, dude, what is hand, foot and mouth disease? I'm like, I don't know. WebMD it. Yeah. <laughs> just because... <laughs> I, because I'm a Mets fan, it does not make me any more apt to describe this disease to you. <laughs> I'm just as confused as everyone else. Yeah, so things are good up in Flushing. I will say he started since then. I think yesterday he started. And we're recording this coming to you on a Sunday, which is probably going to be our usual recording schedule from now on. So look for our episodes earlier in the week. But yeah, I think he started yesterday. I think everything went fine. Or maybe DeGrom started yesterday. Maybe he started too. Either way. I think hand, foot, and mouth disease is a brief thing. <laughs> Not as serious as it sounds. It sounds like dysentery or something like that you would get on the Oregon Trail. Uh, honestly, I, th- I was like, this is it, man. This is the nail in the coffin for the Mets season. <laughs> the nail in the coffin was hammered a while ago. <laughs> anyway, other things. 
I'm I assume most of you by the time you're listening to this have heard the almost satirical rant of the Braves announcers during the Dodgers batting practice. You know that I grew up in the Dodger organization yeah. and certainly was taught how to play professional baseball and do things the right way. I want you to look at some things that were going on today in batting practice here with the Dodgers. What do you see? T-shirts, you see Chase Utley with no socks and pants up over his knees, T-shirt. This was prevalent with their whole team. And I think about play, uh, fans that come to SunTrust Park who were Dodgers fans and want to see their players. They had no idea who any of, any of them were. Nobody had any kind of uniform or batting practice shirt on with their name on their jersey. They looked very unprofessional. Uh, and I think I can say this because I know what the Dodger organization was all about. There's the bunt. It is perfect. But if I were a Dodger fan, I'd be embarrassed. And I don't know how Major League Baseball allows such attire when the gates are open and fans are watching. Uh, Chase Utley, I've had nothing but respect for him his whole career. I think he's a great player. I thought he always played the game the right way. That was an embarrassment what he had on today during batting practice. Yeah, when you think of all the merchandising the Major League Baseball does with their practice uniforms and the batting practice jerseys, I'm with you. Why not? It's called a uniform for a reason. Honestly, I was laughing so hard when I heard this because this is like something that you and I would have concocted in our uh, make fun of old white men rants, you know? But this is... Uh, I don't know. This was you, we couldn't even script this kind of thing. This is one for the ages. This was this is like one of those things that would go in the the never born fake take column that we said that we were going to do for the website. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, where we were going to just make up takes. It's not even just that they had this rant. It's like Chip Carey doubled down on it. Did you see his tweet afterwards? Yeah, I did. I'm not the guy taking BP and Capri mimicking pants, no socks, and no uniform. (laughs) Oh, man. He said, why not wear MLB-issued BP jerseys with names on road so paying customers knows who's who? Lighten up. Lighten up! Oh, Oh, we're the ones that need to lighten up. He's telling us to lighten up. Oh, he's the one ranting on national television about players not wearing socks. I mean, and he was he was calling it an embarrassment. He talked about he used to have respect for Chase Utley, and which, first of all, why? Um, <laughs> but he used to have respect for Chase Utley because he was such a professional. But now, after seeing him in shorts and a t-shirt, and he specifically pointed out the low socks that he was wearing, uh, he was like, you know, he doesn't know how he can respect him. And I'm like, really? This is the thing that keeps you up at night? And what was incredible about it to me is that like this didn't just even come up like offhandedly like someone made a casual remark about it they were like prepared to go into this because the production team had these clips queued up so they could show a uh, video from batting practice and yeah. i'm like how oh my god like they talked before the broadcast they were like we have to talk about how much of an atrocity this is and i'm like i don't know if this doesn't drive you away from the game i don't i don't even know man yeah did you see Kike's tweet? I did see Kike's tweet, yes. He tweeted like Microsoft Paint version of <laughs> of like a Speedo with LA and Hernandez <laughs> on the back. Hey, he can't he can't make the same argument that you wouldn't know who he was. Um Kike is the only person that matters. 
Uh, absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So things. So baseball is good. Baseball is good right now. Uh, the MLB's Twitter account also had a very good week with regards to inclusivity. MLB's Twitter account, a uh, tough week. They tweeted. They tweeted earlier in the week a picture of Shohei Otani and Ichiro hanging out and talking. And the caption was Spider-Man pointing meme, which I assume everyone listening to this podcast knows what the Spider-Man pointing meme is, but it's just a meme of people. (laughs) I don't know. Maybe not. (laughs) We're, we're, we're way too online to have an unbiased view of this. (laughs) Um, The Spider-Man pointing meme is just two Spider-Men in a cartoon pointing at each other. And everyone turns it into like, oh, these are the same thing because they look the same, right? Right. So, it's like it's like when you when you tweet out a uh, a picture of a cop standing next to a like a alt right guy, and you do the Spider Man pointing meme because they're the same. <laughs> anyway, they did it with Ichiro and Shohei Otani. I guess just because they're both Japanese. I I really do not know what was the thinking behind this you tweeted out a picture of two japanese players and the meme you used was the one that talks about how they're both the same how there's no difference between the two and i'm like oh boy this is this isn't even we talk about this on uh in our interview with kelly wallace but like this isn't just like racially insensitive man that's like a racist tweet they went in and deleted it too because they got roasted hard for it rightfully so yeah, so they did that, and then they also had another, not quite as bad one, but something about, uh, did did you even have this one pulled up? Something about, they said someone was like triggered. They tweeted out a video of the Rays um, winning against Yankees, and they and they said retweet to, to trigger a Yankees fan. They are literally just being run by alt-right accounts. Honestly, it is, it's insane at this point. Retweet to trigger, that's like... Retweet to own the libs. Retweet to own the Yankees fans. Yeah, there are the, oh my God, there are so many layers to that. Like, not only are you just casually picking phrases from right wing trolls, but you're using language that specifically refers to like post traumatic stress disorder. And you're just casually using it on uh, your Twitter account. Ah, man. Yeah, mental health, not something MLB has a grip on. That's for sure. Uh, nope. We saw that a lot earlier this year with uh, the Ken Giles situation. We talked a lot about that. Finally, in our list of shitty housekeeping things that we have to do before a really great interview, we talked at length about this last week, but the Josh Hader situation at the All-Star Game with his old tweets, everyone's kind of talked about this ad nauseum. Uh, There was an article in the New York Times called With a Loud Ovation, Baseball Shows Its Whiteness. And it's a really solid article. It's a really solid argument. It just talks about how Baseball is under this umbrella of unbridled white id. And it's written by Michael Powell. He is a white columnist for the New York Times sports section, I guess. And I don't necessarily have any gripes with the article. It just makes me a little bit uncomfortable to see the paper of record after a situation like this. A lot of time passes and the writer that you find to kind of rebuke this situation is an older white guy when a lot of this situation had to do with racially charged statements from Josh Hader, it just feels like a paper with the reach of the New York Times should have the ability to find a writer of color to attack the situation from a different perspective. There's a part in the article where he's talking about how 
Imagine if Josh Hader is black and an excavation of his Twitter account reveals that he called whites crackers. <laughs> it's just like, I don't know that this situation needs to be flipped on its head so that whites can understand it. I wish that they had a writer of color who could actually rebuke this sentiment for the real world reason that it actually happened rather than like having a white writer afterwards try to like put it in a framework that white people can understand. Right. And and I agree with you on that, but I will say that I think that it is equally as important for white people to call this shit when they see it, right? Because if you only have a like a black writer come out and uh, and talk about it, I mean, I think a lot of people will listen to that and take that um, into account. But unfortunately, uh, there are probably other people who may not listen as closely, and so I think it's Im- incumbent upon like us, like, like you and I, and other cis white males to like call each other out, right? And like hold each other accountable. And that's not to say that the paper of record should only publish those opinions, because I think that that kind of does a disservice to the topic, like you were saying. But yeah, I I would like to see a more diverse range of, uh, I guess, perspective on this without putting the burden on uh, on writers of color to denounce this because that's the the only thing that I want to be um, careful of is is being like oh well like we should um, we should get like a black writer to write about this and like tell us why it's wrong and it's like you should not need that person to tell you that this is fucked up yeah I don't know I don't want to de- like delve too far into the situation because we talked about it so much last week. And we have a great interview coming up that we don't want to bury. <laughs> but it's sort of like that conversation about the weird obsession that white liberals have with ta Coates, like putting them in their place. We don't need every time something bad happens, you don't need the burden to fall on black writers to tell white people why it was bad. Maybe we should be proactive, be a little bit more yeah. proactive about situations like this. Yeah. So yeah, I definitely see where you're coming from with that. I just think the New York Times has so many subscribers and so much fucking money that there's room for both. I'm calling them the paper of record tongue in cheek because what kind of paper of record doesn't have a record of a person of color's reaction to this situation? Yeah, hard agree with you there. All right, well, now that we've lightened the mood, um, (laughs) let's get to that interview with Kelly Wallace when we come back. All right, so today, Alex, we're really lucky to be joined by Kelly Wallace. It's been a while since we've had a guest, and this is a good one. Kelly is the editor-in-chief of the New Venture Expanded Roster, which is a website focusing specifically on um, intersectionality in baseball, uh, feminism, writers of color, stories from people of color. She's also the managing editor at Stage and Candor, which is an arts platform focusing on intersectionality and she contributes to Locked On Cubs. Um, Kelly, since we're just meeting in this very natural way, um, could you tell us a little about how you got so into the baseball world that you wanted to launch a startup media website in it? 
Sure. Uh, yeah. Hi, everybody. Uh, nice to meet you and all of your listeners. Um, <laughs> for anyone, I'm sure most of you have not followed me or my career for most of my life because it was not in baseball. Um, so I um, started off right out of college uh, writing in theater, actually, uh, in the arts, TV, that kind of thing. I did a lot of interviews and opinion stuff for uh, places like Playbill.com. Uh, and that was fun. Uh, that was really cool. It was something I really enjoyed. And uh, from there, I sort of branched out on my own after a couple years uh, to take a job as the managing editor for Stage and Candor, uh, which is an intersectional feminist uh, arts website uh, that I still write for occasionally. It still exists. We became and remain, I think, the best intersectional activist arts website out there. You can absolutely continue to check us out. It's awesome. I have another story coming out there this week, actually. Awesome. Um, but yeah, sports were always my big love, my biggest you know, dream. Uh, it's not the kind of thing where I grew up feeling like there was a place for me to work in sports, though. Um, I didn't really feel like there was much opportunity. I felt kind of very intimidated. And part of that was, I think, my own sort of getting comfortable with myself as a writer and as a professional. But um, it really didn't feel that welcoming to me. Um, but I started sort of tweeting actually a lot about sports, doing like play by play stuff in the games, making jokes, you know, giving the limited analysis that I felt that I could offer. Um, and I sort of started to amass a bit of a, a following in the sports world. And um, it was Ryan Davis, uh, originally, who is an amazing uh, sports writer he, who works a lot for websites like The Athletic and Sporting News and all that, who reached out to me and basically was like, well, why don't you try writing about sports? Like, why aren't you actually doing this? And like, I didn't really have a good answer uh, for him. <laughs> so he basically was like, well, why don't you start doing it now with me for Locked on Cubs, which is, was the old like fan rag portal before it became, you know, fan crud and what it is now. Um, but yeah, so I started doing that. Um, I just kind of grinded it out and just kept writing and publishing as much as I possibly could because that's how you learn in my experience. Um, so I just kept going. I wrote anywhere I could to get experience, even if it was just me posting on Medium, like on my own, you know, yeah. coming up with stuff if I couldn't find somewhere to place pitches, which is kind of funny because that's actually one of the things that people most know me for is a, a stupid article I posted on Medium, uh, which was just, um, it was called A Lesbian's Guide to the Butts of the Chicago Cubs. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, uh, and it went a little viral. It went a little bit viral. Uh, it was by far the most popular sports article I've ever written, uh, which is unfortunate because I think <laughs> I've written some actually serious articles that are a little bit of good also, but, um, yeah. And that, that was sort of what, what made, I guess, built up my following or my, you know, reputation or whatever in sports, Twitter, sports online. Uh, and I guess that's how I sort of came into the sports world prior to the sort of beginning and founding of expanded roster. That's like the long story compressed as much as I can. <laughs> Um, yeah, well, you have managed just kind of, you know, following you on Twitter and seeing the stuff that you 
um, tweet about and talk about. It's that you have managed to kind of um, retain a a fandom and a love for the game, which I think that maybe um, a lot of sports writers you kind of have to divest yourself from that to to be a quote unquote like um, professional sports writer and and maybe not root so hard for the team you're covering or something like that. Um, and you have managed to kind of marry those two and and write about the team professionally and um, and goings on around the league um, while still understanding that uh, you know we're all kind of fans doing this so kind of how do you strike that balance especially when it comes to things that major league baseball does that might you know directly um, impact like the the fans experience yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm, I don't believe in that, like that whole sort of ethos of, um, you can't be a fan and be a sports writer. I know that that's the common wisdom. And a lot of people feel like that helps their writing and their job. And if, if you feel like that, that's totally fine. Um, I just don't, um, the sports are supposed to be fun. I love sports. I love working in sports. I love writing about sports. And I don't feel like I personally, uh, benefit or need to, cut off my fandom and my enjoyment in order to do my work. Um, and I'm never, I'm never going to do that. I'm never going to be the person who does that. And I think that that's part of why people uh, enjoy, I hope, uh, part of why people enjoy following me and my work. Um, because I think there's, there's an honesty and an authenticity. Um, and I hope that that connects with people. Um, and, and as far as, you know, doing my work, it honestly does not um, super affect the way that I write, um, just because writing and journalism is, um, I take it very seriously and I take my, my job very seriously and the opportunities I've had to talk to players and to write stories and to go out and, you know, really do what I've been doing. Um, I don't take that for granted. I take it very seriously. And, um, I'm always going to, when I'm working on a story, prioritize that over any, you know, loyalties or fandom or, you know, biases that I might have. I think that I've succeeded at that, at least in my estimation. I hope other people feel that way too. And I, I hope that my work for Expanded Roster will continue to sort of, you know, show people that those two things don't have to be opposed to each other and can sort of be married into a happy little family. So I can <laughs> keep doing my thing and being silly, uh, <laughs> but still, you know, hopefully giving people a little more insight and informing them with some good content too. Not not to mention, I don't think Ken Rosenthal's guide to the butts of the Chicago Cubs would be nearly <laughs> as interesting as yours. So. I don't think he's an expert. I don't know. I don't think he's done the research that I've done. <laughs> I don't on think the so. Topic. <laughs> um, I'm curious to hear a little bit how some of your journalism in the field of the arts has kind of informed how you approached writing about sports to begin with. Cause that was kind of like the lane that you were going down and then jumping into sports. It can be um, a lot of the traditional writing about sports is very different from writing about the arts. Um, and, so, <laughs> and so kind of that idea of the foundation that you built writing about um, arts at places like Playbill and places like Stage and Candor. How did that either inform your voice when writing about sports, your approach to a story, the way you're looking for a lead, that kind of thing, um, who you want to talk to? I'd be interested to hear about that. Yeah, um, it absolutely informs the way that I look at sports. I think hopefully in a unique way that that people like. But um, yeah, I think that coming from theater and coming from the arts, my experience primarily is is in stories and in storytelling. And obviously, when you're writing about um, television, film, uh, theater, musicals, whatever, I mean, what you're essentially writing about is a story that somebody's telling you. 
Uh, and I think that uh, baseball and baseball writers and sports writing doesn't necessarily lend itself to a sort of broader picture storytelling approach. Um, and I think that's something I, I bring and that I want to bring uh, to sports writing is to explore um, more narrative, more, um, I don't know, things that I feel like are um, that tell a story as opposed to, you know, evaluate a player. I'm not the expert on stats. I'm not the expert on who's going to be traded where. I'm never going to be that person. I don't think I don't see myself as that person. Uh, but what I think I do offer is a perspective that other people don't have uh, for identifying stories, for identifying personalities that I think are interesting. And for sort of noticing just as an coming from a, someone who is an editor and um, all of that, just noticing uh, what what voids there are and what stories aren't out there yet. Um, and trying to sort of fill those voids is sort of something that has always been my job in other industries. And in sports, it's sort of more pronounced, I guess, the gap uh, between the sort of traditional sports media and what I personally would really like to do. So we brought you on because we wanted to talk about Expanded Roster. We've been following it kind of since it started up, following it through the Kickstarter and everything. We were curious just to see kind of where this idea was born from. I mean, I think we have an idea of where the idea of it was born from, but how did it gain the momentum from an idea that you wanted to see this change in the, the baseball media landscape to something that actually does have a lot of crowdfunding now? It has over $11,000 last time I checked on Kickstarter. Um, yes. How did it go from being just something that you wanted to do, something that you felt was needed to something that actually started to get done? Um, well, it actually started like a lot of things with a tweet. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I was, you know, talking to a couple of friends in, um, in a group DM, just how we were frustrated with, um, some of the beat writing that was going on and some of the coverage of a couple of things that were going on in sports at the time and that no one was really talking about it the way that I wanted people to talk about it. Um, and I will tell you what specifically the one of the incidents was that set it off. But uh, basically, I just made a tweet that I was like, well, imagine if we had a sports website that wasn't that was fun and irreverent and wasn't basically the concept of toxic masculinity come to life. Um, I think yeah. that's exactly what I said. And, um, and it just went off. I mean, it just got hundreds and hundreds of retweets. I got so many messages in my DMs just being like, you should do this. You have to do this. I want to write for this. You know, people saying, oh, I would, you know, do want to do your web design. I want to do all this stuff. And I, it was super overwhelming at first because it was something that I was interested in doing. And I had been talking to some friends about doing, but, you know, sort of far off in the future, um, not now at all. Uh, and the response was just so huge that, you know, it started to make me feel like maybe this is the time. Now is when people are paying attention to this. Now is when when we're getting this sort of response and this huge reaction. Why not channel that while that energy exists? And, you know, if you wait till you're ready to do something, you might not ever do it. So uh, I just thought, okay, then let's start planning this. Let's see what it would cost financially. Let's see what you know, what does it take to make a Kickstarter? What is it going to take to promote a Kickstarter? How much, you know, can I invest the time in this right now? And honestly, really, it felt like I could uh, and that those things were possible. Uh, so you 
took the leap and I figured if nobody donates, uh, nobody cares, then I've lost nothing and we can just move on <laughs> and <laughs> pretend that I haven't embarrassed myself by launching this huge idea and having no one care about it. Um, but that did not happen, thank God. Um, and so now here we are uh, with a good base of uh, crowdfunding to get us going, which is awesome. Uh, and we've, you know, where we are kind of right now is uh, actually tomorrow we will be announcing the date that the website will go live. Oh, awesome. Uh, so look forward to that. Uh, we're currently in the process of manufacturing all of the fun merchandise and rewards that everyone ordered from Kickstarter, uh, finishing up our web development and our branding. Uh, and as always, of course, seeking out more content and more stories. Um, if you're a writer out there and you want to give it a shot, please email us uh, pitches at expandedroster.com. Uh, please don't feel like you have to have a certain amount of experience or like you're not qualified or whatever. If you have a good idea, please send it to me. I want to hear it. Sorry, that's my plug. I love that natural <laughs> plug. Always an editor at heart. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, that's that's my goal now, right? I can't afford a publicist, so I just have to learn how to shamelessly promote myself. Uh, well, it, it's been really impressive just kind of seeing how much it has picked up steam um, over the last few weeks and months. And so the the goal of the site essentially is to offer this um, space for a lot of diverse perspectives and not to ask the obvious question, but just kind of why do you think that right now in 2018, like this is um, something that's necessary? And I say that especially thinking about a place like The Athletic, which is scooping up writers left and right, um, and a lot of really good writers, but a lot of their perspectives are uh, I guess very one-sided, you could say. Um, so, just kind of why um, why this? Why is this something that kind of you wanted to to bring to the sports world? Sure. And first, let me say I love the Athletic. I admire the Athletic <laughs> and a lot of their writers. Some of them are writing for us, um, <laughs> and I greatly appreciate that. Um, I will say that if you look at the staff of the Athletic, you will find that it doesn't look particularly different. Uh, than the staff at any of the other um, newspaper, major newspapers, um, the more traditional outlets. Uh, so while I think they're pushing the boundaries quite a bit, especially on their subscription model uh, and on putting an investment into long-form uh, athletic journalism, which is really important, um, I, I don't feel like they've quite hit the point of um, servicing the need of more diversity uh, which is something that obviously is is one of our primary goals. Um, so that's something that I, I would say about the difference between us and a website like The Athletic. Uh, and I think this year, honestly, even right now, I feel like there have been a lot of stories that have sort of pointed out the inability of the current sports media infrastructure to cover them in a way that includes everyone's perspective. Um, and I would say some good examples of that are the Josh Hader story uh, that has sort of dominated everything. I mean, uh, you know, the um, the whole incident with um, Clint Hurdle calling out um, Javier Baez and Wilson Contreras over the uh, respecting the game sort of thing. Um, a lot of that stuff sort of gets these controversies sort of happen and people address them in these sort of coded words or being like, oh, he said something controversial or like, 
those racially charged remarks that, <laughs> and no one is really willing to like say what happened. Yeah. And that's something that really frustrated me. Uh, that was one of the things that made me really want to start this was seeing that kind of coverage that no one was talking about, for example, with the um, the example of Javi Baez and Wilson Contreras. No one was talking about the racial element of it, the fact that a lot of the things that were said about them were very clearly, at best, a dog whistle in the most generous <laughs> of interpretations, mm-hmm. and at worst, just nakedly racist. And I felt like no, like there was all this coverage of the sort of dogfight of it, of the rivalry of it, but there was no one saying, hey, this is racist. <laughs> <laughs> this is super racist. And, you know, one of the first uh, posts I went, I wrote for the Locked on Cubs website that got any attention was the article I wrote about how racist it was. Uh, and people really responded to it. And that was another one of the things that made me feel like, okay, people do actually want to hear this perspective. It's just not out there. So that was, I think, incidents like that and the media reaction to them. I mean, I think, yeah, the hater one has been really instructive. I think just in showing how um, not equipped we all are to discuss the issue in a productive way that includes voices of the people that he hurt, for example. Right. Yeah. I think that might be really uh, a really good example for anyone who's looking at the current landscape of a story that maybe could use better coverage. It's refreshing to find someone who's willing to call it instructive because a lot of the times it just makes me very cynical to watch the way that it unfolds in the media landscape afterwards. (laughs) But yeah, so I wanted to ask specifically kind of some of the nuts and bolts questions. Um, So like what what type of content is it really going to try to focus on? Is it going to be a lot of long form blogging? Um, Are there going to be multimedia stuff like podcasts and photography? I'm curious as to how you're sort of approaching it from this very blank slate kind of situation. Um, What you're assessing will be content that works well for these diverse voices, for these writers of color, for for the kind of content that you're really trying to push out there and the kind of voice that you want? Sure. So we do want to marry um, content and journalism with more fun stuff, but also uh, more educational stuff. So a lot of what you can expect for our launch, um, we have a couple longer form stories. Uh, one of them, the, the one that I personally am working on, uh, was a story that I'm writing about uh, going to Mexico, uh, where I spent uh, almost a week uh, with the Leones de Yucatan, which is a uh, Liga Mexicana team that was in the championship this year and won. Uh, for the record, got nice. to uh, cover their championship game with a big win at home, which was really exciting. Uh, and the all-star game, because what I really wanted to focus on was covering non-American baseball and baseball in Latin American countries and outside the United States. Right. Um, because I feel like we don't talk about that and the influence it's starting to have on the American game. So, for example, that's a narrative that I personally wanted to explore in something long form. But we also have... Um, things like, for example, uh, Jen Ramos is going to be writing a column called Force Play, um, where they give advice on how to make it in the industry as a marginalized person or as someone who is not a cisgender white male with interviews with people who have succeeded, personal experiences, things like that. So people can expect stuff like that from us, um, things that are actually supposed to be intentionally educational and to bring people in. Uh, We have Caitlin Bird from the Huffington Post, who's going to be writing an amazing uh, personal essay on trying to reckon with rooting for a team that has players that have committed domestic violence, who are homophobic, who say hateful things. How do you 
as a baseball fan, reckon with rooting for that or supporting your team when that's something that you always have in the back of your head. That's the kind of thing we're also trying to focus on too. It's personal experiences, personal essays and education, and long-form journalism combined with a little bit of silly fun. <laughs> uh, we do have some some very uh, offbeat, just fun uh, irreverent content too. One of my favorite things that we have coming up is um, Brittany De La Critas is doing a Who Wore It Best column, uh, which is basically going to be a really fun combination of uh, actual baseball analysis and fashion, uh, where she it. is going to take <laughs> two players who wore the same number and tell me who wore it best. So um, I love it. Yeah, it's a, it's a diverse slate of stuff, but we're we're covering a, a broad spectrum. But I would say fun journalism and education would be what we're trying to do. Yeah. And that's really cool. And these are a lot of ideas and stories that I I see kind of floating around in some of the smaller baseball Twitter circles, but that's really not the, unfortunately, it's not the kind of thing that would um, grace the the page of like a a local newspaper or something like that. Mm -hmm. So it's cool to see um, these stories coming out. I want to, um, ask you a bit more about the Liga Mexicana championship and just kind of your experience with that. And I don't want to um, scoop you on your own article <laughs> that you're writing, and I'm sure we'll all um, go read that when it comes out. But you mentioned just kind of seeing what MLB can learn from from other leagues uh, around the world. And I would just kind of be curious to get your perspective on that a little more, especially as um, Major League Baseball kind of is having an identity crisis and, and wondering like, <laughs> what the way forward is um, for people to keep watching baseball. So kind of what have you um, learned in your in your research and your trips? Well, this is um, actually tangential to the experience of actually being at a baseball stadium. But I will say that um, in terms of baseball's identity crisis, I think one thing that might help is having commentators and announcers that actually love baseball. <laughs> um, that's, that's something that so I true. truly, that if you listen to a radio broadcast of a Liga Mexicana game, which I did while I was there to try to get a sense of how they, they talk about the games, there's a real joy and excitement and everyone, you know, it, the play-by-play is exuberant and you, you can tell that everyone's invested in what's going on as opposed to, you know, for a recent example, um, having someone go on and on about whether or not the t-shirts are appropriate at batting <laughs> practice. I'm <laughs> not really sure how that helps anyone learn about or get interested in the game, but I guess everyone has their strategy. <laughs> uh, so I would say that the joy of it um, and the joy that people take in it is, is huge there. Um, it's also a lot more of an event honestly. Um, It's more affordable, uh, first of all, specifically in the Yucatan, which is, uh, by the way, I think the only place in Mexico where baseball is more popular than uh, football, not not American football. Um, So it was actually a great place to go and and learn about this. But yeah, I would say that's, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty strange, but it's, it's a lot cheaper. Um, I think that it came out to to get a, a cheapish ticket would be two or three dollars American. Jeez, uh, wow. Yeah, I mean, and part of that is the exchange rate right now, to be fair. But even um, even when the exchange rate was uh, more favorable, it was still again, it's like ten dollars or less for the most part. Um, and it's actually a thing that the normal regular people do. Uh, you know, going to the game at night is is something that 
everyone can enjoy instead of going out to the club or going to the restaurant, you go to the game. And I don't think that going to a game right now is sort of presented as an alternative or as a regular sort of night out activity here. And it can't be really partially because it's so expensive Um, Mm -hmm. between the tickets and food once you're there and beer and all that. It's sort of completely out of uh, it's out of most people's ability to go regularly and to make it a hobby in that way. So I think that is a huge thing there that the fan base is more invested and more present. And I think that lends itself to what you see at the actual games, which is people who are very passionate about their team, who are very loud, who are very appreciative of being there and who really want to go and have a good time. And that's exactly what it is. You know, when you go to like, for example, the all-star game and the championship game, uh, you go outside and there's food and there's dancing, there's music, there are games like sort of carnival style games set up that you can play. Um, I mean, it's a whole event. The environment is kind of like a parade, but then there's also baseball. <laughs> and I think that's something that is missing here is is the excitement and the sort of the spectacle and the event and the just the exuberance of it, I don't find in American baseball. And they also have, for the record, instead of a kiss cam, they have a Titanic cam where if you are on it, you have to reenact the Jack and Rose on the ship, you know, hold her, him holding her hands kind of thing on the video board, which I think American baseball should steal immediately. That's incredible. <laughs> I, just, I would really like to see that at Wrigley Field next time I go. That's outstanding. Well, it's like, I I think it's it's tied up in a lot of these conversations that we have around like the, the culture around baseball, right? And just how seriously it takes itself. And and at some point, you got to hope that the, the people who are running the game wake up and realize that this is like a child's game that we are playing. And it's mm-hmm. ultimately very meaningless. And as many people should be watching it and take joy in it as possible. Um, and, and you see that in, uh, in places like Japan too, mm-hmm. where, where the whole crowd is just into it. And, and there are like cheerleaders and, uh, yes, it's they this, have like, cheerleaders too. They do yeah, have cheerleaders. Do awesome. like a <laughs> Right, because because the crowd should be cheering and the crowd should be engaged and and having a good time and feel like they're actually um, a part of something and not like um, sitting in church or something like that. You know? Yeah, no, it's it's you know as much as I do believe that you should treat baseball like church in terms of that it's a better thing to do on Sundays than going to church. Um, <laughs> I just uh, yeah, it's just different. Um, and you know, and we're sitting here talking about oh, what you know, what can Major League Baseball learn? And I think that there's a lot. But then you also have to remember that a lot of people don't want Major League Baseball to learn from these kinds of things. You know, yeah. I think about um, Bud Norris from the Cardinals who made those comments yeah, on USA Today <laughs> about how he, um, he thinks that, you know, if you're going to come here and make our American dollars, you know, it's America's game and you have to, pl- you know how we play here. And I believe what he said was, you know, I know it's cultural, but it has no place or something to that effect. And, you know, when you read stuff like that, it's just so disheartening because you, he just doesn't, it just makes me feel like he just doesn't get baseball and what makes it great. Like, and what makes it fun and what makes people love it so much, especially outside of the United States. And I, you know, I worry about attitudes like that attitudes, like, um, like with Clint Hurdle, you know, I, I hope that those attitudes are on the way out, uh, as opposed to continuing to dominate 
the style and the the narrative around baseball. I want to believe, and I hope that expanded roster can help, that those attitudes and those viewpoints are going to be less and less loud uh, going forward, and that maybe we can push a different narrative that's a little more inclusive. Yeah, I think one of the big things that you mentioned for me, well, I think it's weird that just baseball has become so puritanical and so... I don't know. It's like a baseball MLB is like a police state, but that's an entirely different conversation (laughs) that we could go down. But I think one of the Mm -hmm. interesting things that you mentioned to me that I don't see a lot of places doing is just that idea of educational content to make it more Mm -hmm. accessible to people from different backgrounds who didn't grow up playing that very puritanical way of baseball Mm -hmm. and who maybe don't understand the designated hitter or don't understand the more nuanced things within baseball. And so educational content while also remaining kind of irreverent, like you mentioned, fun, lighthearted when it's appropriate. That's a really cool idea that I hadn't really thought of and don't really see happening anywhere else. I I feel like a lot of the language used in baseball writing and baseball media is very heightened and inaccessible to people. Oh, I agree. It feels like that too. I think it stops people from getting into it. You know, I have a lot of friends who are casual fans and, you know, who don't necessarily become bigger fans or become more active in the community online and offline because they feel like people will make fun of them or not talk to them if they don't have this huge base of knowledge. And, you know, unless you've been a sports fan your whole life, it's very intimidating to think, wow, there is all of this stuff that I don't know that you feel like everyone knows except for you. Um, And the reality is, first of all, they don't. All of us, everyone in baseball knows way less than you think they do. Um, That's, I don't think that there is an exception that I've met. But second of all, it behooves everyone in this industry to be not smug and not condescending and not holier than thou about things that they are able to know or that they've come to know because it, it's just so much more productive to help other people know those things too and um, share them in a way that that is accessible and understandable to someone who doesn't spend eight hours a day on fan graphs. Yeah, truly holier than thou could be baseball's slogan right now. And it's very unfortunate. <laughs> yeah, that, that does feel like it's sort of the general vibe right now. And I, I mean, I think another thing that that's important, too, is, you know, we, we know people want that, too, that they want analysis and they want to, you know, hear about the teams they love and the players they love in that way. Um, but I think you can also combine that with talking about other things. For example, I just got back from Rome, Georgia, where uh, I went to go see the Rome Braves and I um, interviewed William Contreras, who is the brother of Wilson Contreras, uh, who's currently the number 13 prospect in the Braves system uh, and probably their their best catching prospect and best hope of developing an, an everyday catcher from their system. But that's a whole other conversation. Um, but we were talking about obviously his career and his, you know, catching and his, you know, his style of play and how he's improving and how his time in the brave system has been. But, you know, we were also talking about, he is, he's from Venezuela. Uh, he's from a very, very small town uh, on the coast of Venezuela. Um, and obviously the political situation right there right now is incredibly difficult. Uh, there's a lot going on and uh, a lot of people aren't safe and don't have food to eat. Um, and so we talked about, you know, MLB is drafting from Venezuela. They get so much talent from Venezuela. They, you know, they rely on these countries really to, to fill out some of the best talent in all of baseball. Yet, you know, these kids are here, they're 14, 15, 16 years old, and they don't have enough to eat. And they're, 
trying to chase this dream of, of playing Major League Baseball, which requires you to be at peak physical form, to be the best athlete that you can be. And it's so hard to do that when you don't have enough food. So, you know, you think about, well, can't if Major League Baseball is going to do this, if they're going to take all this talent and scout in these countries, shouldn't they have some kind of obligation to give something back? And I don't just mean for kids who sign. I mean that there are always going to be more kids trying to play than the ones who actually get contracts. And if Major League Baseball is going to recruit all these kids, I personally think, you know, and I, this is not, I'm not assigning this opinion to William, but it is something we talked about. I personally think that Major League Baseball should give back and should provide food, should provide protein, should provide access to, to safe housing. I mean, these are things that Major League Baseball should be doing in all of these countries for anyone who wants to play, not just for the, the players they draft. And, you know, there's obviously a much longer conversation to also be had about, about the international free agent process and how Major League Baseball recruits players from Latin American countries. But so that like, that's just something, for example, that in any story that we want to talk about more than just the baseball of it, that there's more to all of right. these players than just what they're doing on the field. No, you're totally right. And that's something that I think makes like makes me very uncomfortable just as uh, in these conversations around like um, international players and, and kids who were, you know, are getting signed at like 15 or something like that. Mm -hmm. And, and then are whisked away in, into um, a country where they don't speak the language and they mm -hmm. aren't necessarily culturally acclimated. And it's, and it's really. Um, and then they get railed against for not being culturally acclimated too. Yeah, exactly. And, and not, and not speaking the language. And stuff. Well, what's funny is that, and uh, you know, I'm not, um, I had an amazing time in Rome. I think uh, everyone I met who worked for the team and with the team was wonderful. Um, I will say that I think a lot of people do hold on. And I mean this not in an organizational sense, more in a fan sense. People will say things like, oh, he's been here so long or on Twitter even. I saw this with um, with Gary Sanchez after that that play that people found controversial when he didn't run it out to yeah. first base. When people were saying, yeah. oh, why did he speak through a translator? Why doesn't he speak English? Or I've heard him, I've seen him speak English, you know, with so-and-so. How come he can't speak it to the press? And, you know, that kind of stuff drives me crazy because first of all, it's incredibly hard to learn English and to master English, which is a sort of very idi idiomatic language, uh, is, is difficult for anybody, uh, let alone someone who's also trying to focus on being a baseball player. Uh, and, you know, a very good one. Too. At, yeah, exactly. Incredibly good one and competing at the highest level in a, an incredibly demanding way and a contending team. I mean, the amount of pressure from his job alone is astronomical. Um, but then, you know, also to factor in trying to, to adjust and to learn a new language, but also, and I don't think people understand this, just because you speak a language doesn't mean you're comfortable talking to the press in that language. Um, I can't like beat this into people's heads enough. There is a huge difference between learning a language and speaking it with your friends and going on the record. Uh, anyone on Twitter should know this because you're all the ones nitpicking everybody. But I mean, it's just dangerous. You know, I mean, uh, we've seen this with the Chicago press with you Darvish a little bit that people look to misinterpret or look for any 
thing that they can seize on to make a controversy or to make a narrative. And, you know, a lot of that hurts players who don't speak English as a first language because you get misinterpreted and you you end up saying things that people interpret totally differently from the way that you meant them. And it's unfair because it can create all kinds of damaging media narratives just because people don't understand. Um, again, when I was talking to, to William, we spoke a couple times uh, before the game and after the game. And uh, one of those times we, we spoke through his translator and then uh, the second time we didn't. Um, and the second time that we didn't, I, it's only because of the comfort level we established when going through his translator. I mean, mm-hmm. people, there's a real reason why people aren't necessarily immediately willing to do that and to trust people that way. And it's because people are so often reporting irresponsibly and are willing to sometimes even consciously misinterpret or misquote people or use a quote that's inflammatory just because that's what get clicks. And, you know, I think that does disproportionately hurt players of color and players who don't speak English as a first language. Totally. I'm I'm reminded of the time, I think last year when Yoannis Cespedes, I think was talking about um, a potential trade and he was talking about um, how he loved playing for Bob Melvin and the A's and everyone was like, oh my God, like uh, Yoannis, like I can't believe he said that sort of thing. And it's like, why, like, why can't we give these players the benefit <laughs> of the doubt sometime, you know? Right. Um, it's, yeah, it's astounding. Um, we don't want to keep you too much longer, but... Uh, I did want to ask you before we go, as, and it's especially fitting as we talk about the culture around baseball, how, in your opinion, do we bring socialism to Major League Baseball? <laughs> I, I will nationalize baseball tomorrow. Let me tell you, I would love who, to who do we eat first? the production. Uh, <laughs> Manfred, obviously. Uh, yes, so true. I, well, like, right? Because that's the real thing. It would, <laughs> if I think if we all as fans in the community controlled baseball, it would be infinitely better. Um, But yeah, the capitalist interest in baseball is honestly really what does drive a lot of the problems that we see here. I mean, again, we mentioned this with the um, international free agents, but you know, the money that is made off of these young people that they never see in return, that they never you know, they never get the return that these teams get from the way that they sign them. They're often incredibly underpaid, especially players who don't play in the major leagues. Um, that's ex- uh, exploitative. You have, you know, teams that manipulate service time for players to delay their free agency. You know, you saw the Cubs do it with Chris Bryan and you, every team does it. I don't, you know, I don't even want to call out one team because they all do it. Um, and, you know, yeah. the, the amount of teams that'll, that, that, you know, right now the White Sox are doing it with, um, uh, Eloy. You know, it's, it's really sad. The, the ways that, People feel that they can use labor and and use take advantage of uh, the CBA and take advantage of the the players union to sort of squeeze all of the money and service that they can out of these guys without compensating them appropriately for it. it it's baffling, honestly. And it you know when you think about the fact that revenues continue to skyrocket, the fact that players aren't seeing any benefit from that or seeing any increase in their salaries or improvement in their conditions is, um, is it's horrifying really. And I know it's hard to make that argument to, to fans because they say, Oh, you know, he has a $126 million contract. What does he have to complain about? Or, you know, the top players look at all the money they make. First of all, most baseball players, like 98% of them aren't Bryce Harper. 
Um, so the amount of players that get those kinds of big contracts, first of all, are very few and far between. But second of all, why are you worried about what a player is making? Because the percentage they make in comparison to what ownership makes and in comparison to the profit that these teams are making is minuscule. And it's more about what proportion of the money made by baseball is going to the people who are actually doing the work. And it's not enough. Um, and I would say that that is the argument that needs to be had is how can we be more pro labor and how can we how can we get the sort of business interests, keep them from continuing to exploit players and fans by extension. We should start reporting contracts as percentages of what the owner is making yes, exactly. in profit per year. <laughs> I would love to see an article that did that, that took a team's con. If you want to write that, <laughs> pitch me. If you want to write an article about contracts <laughs> as a uh, as a proportion of a team's income, uh, email me. I'd love to have somebody write that who would be better at it than me. Awesome. <laughs> that doesn't even get into like uh, minor leaguers, right? Mm-hmm. And like the exploitation there. I mean, that's like a whole mm-hmm. other can of worms that like, well, we don't even have to go down that rabbit hole, but it's, yeah, it's a, uh, it's pretty rampant. And, and the fact that minor leaguers feel like they have to have other jobs a lot of the time is insane to me. I mean, it's just, it's absolutely yeah. baffling because, it, you know, the, the amount that you demand of these guys athletically, physically, emotionally, and of their time, their travel, I mean, to ask people to do all of that for for not very much money at all, but but on top of that, for so little money to the point that you generally will work doing something else. I mean, that that's absurd. If Of course, if a player is trying to come up in the system and a team is investing in them, of course, that should be their focus. Of course, they should only be able to focus on baseball and feel secure in doing that. It's insane that they can. But Kelly, they're saving America's pastime. <laughs> they're Yeah, they're delaying someone's free agency by a year, so it's all worth it. <laughs> well, Kelly... Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for coming on. We had a great time talking to you about all these things and about Expanded Roster. Do you want to shout out where people can find Expanded Roster, the best way to get it, if there's a newsletter, Twitter, anything like that? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, first of all, you should follow me on Twitter. I tweet all the time. Uh, It's at Kelly A. Wallace. I tweet a lot about Expanded Roster, obviously, and what's going on there, but also dumb stuff that you'll probably unfollow me for tomorrow. Um, And then Expanded (laughs) Roster, we are at Expanded Roster on all social media, on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Obviously, we are expandedroster.com, but as the website has not launched yet, there is nothing there for you to enjoy beyond a vague skeleton of our layout. (laughs) Um, But it will eventually be there. So definitely sign up for that. And uh, there is no reason to promote the Kickstarter because we actually did it. So I think that's it. (laughs) Awesome. Congratulations on that, by the way. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah. And thank you to everyone who donated, especially. I mean, I didn't do anything, honestly. Uh, it was really the people who, who gave their money who did it. So um, congratulations to them because they are my favorite people in the world. <laughs> <laughs> and we didn't, we didn't even talk about the Cubs at all. But if, oh, you, <laughs> if any of our listeners are fans of uh, pictures of Javier Baez, I think you oh, are God. a wonderful <laughs> Twitter follow. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't, I don't know what to say about that. Uh, <laughs> I'll just say that uh, I feel that sexuality is a beautiful spectrum, uh, and that we should never identify ourselves by one word, and that I think it's perfectly acceptable to be completely gay, except for certain really handsome Latin American baseball players. <laughs> <laughs> so does that make you bias, bias sexual? Uh, 
Oh, that's good. I always say I'm not gay, but I'm homosexual, but bisexual is good too. <laughs> oh, only the best puns. Thank you so much for doing this. It was so much fun. Yeah, thank you for having me on. When there's nothing left on earth, and we've all gone underground. I bet you'll tune in to the only show in town. All right, Alex. That was an awesome interview. Thanks again to Kelly for coming on, for talking at length about all the stuff that Expanded Roster is going to be doing. We'll be supporting that. We'll be uh, boosting that out when they get going and start to get articles out. I'm really excited for some of those articles. Um, We talked off air after we got off of our interview with Kelly just about some of the things we were most excited for, just the educational aspect. But yeah, it's an amazing venture and we're, we're excited to see its success in the future. Yeah, I'm really, I'm really stoked for that piece about uh, about William Contreras too that she was talking about because I think that that's um, something. I think that's a conversation that we kind of have and and other people have in inner circles. But certainly, elevating those conversations uh, to a bigger level is always a good thing. So yeah, we're both really excited for that. Yeah, we talk a lot about that idea that we get stuck in our like lefty Twitter circles, lefty baseball Twitter circles. And potentially, like, some of the things that we think are ubiquitous are not necessarily ubiquitous. Um, I specifically remember some conversation we had about uh, Jose Reyes, maybe, um, and how everyone we follow on Twitter and our mutuals on Twitter are all like, why is this person in the league? Why is he on the Mets? Why, like, why are people still supporting this decision? It seems indefensible. And then if you go to a Mets game, there are people wearing Reyes jerseys. <laughs> um, there are people cheering for him. There are people who just blindly kind of don't know about some of these things. And I don't know, every once in a while you'll get like a rebuke of a situation like that from a mainstream media outlet. But I don't know that there's a place that kind of is coming at that with a certain totality and a certain understanding of the permeations of domestic violence in society. And I'm hoping that expanded rosters, I'm not hoping, I mean, I know that they're going to have writers that are, that are much more qualified to, um, attack some of those issues, I think. Yeah, and um, separate but related, I just saw that uh, Giants fans booed Josh Hader um, in his first road trip. So as much as I don't want to give a hats off to Giants fans, uh, good on you. I mean, the bar is low at this point, but you know, boo racists as much as possible. Yeah, boo, shame, get them the <laughs> fuck out of here. Um, all right, well, we are going to wrap up as we do every week with the Tim Tebow Power Hour. It's going to be a brief one this week. A brief and sad one. I'm going to play that sad music for him. (laughs) Tim Tebow broke his hamate bone, which is some bone in your hand. I don't know. Swinging a bat. My man, he swung too hard in the middle of a game and broke his own hand. (sighs) And he's out for the year. And so this is it. (laughs) The Mets signed Austin Jackson, who has like negative two more this year, (laughs) as as a replacement to have some depth in the organization. I I just don't know why we can't have nice things, you know? Like we can't have one thing to keep us going. Yeah. Uh, what do what do you what do you think? Does he come back next year? Do you think he hangs it up or is he going to keep it going? I I think he already said that he's going to come back. I think his video was like I'm I'm looking forward to getting recovered and getting back on the field or something like that. Yeah. So I I mean I don't think he's like made an official statement. I think it was kind of sort of a veiled statement, but I, I'm pretty sure he's going to be back. I hope so. 
I he was making he was hitting two seventy at double A. So <laughs> you know what? I if he can if Tim Tebow can do that, then anything is possible. Yeah. So farewell, our large thirty one year old son. Tim Timothy Richard Tebow. Get that hand better and we'll see you at some point next year. <laughs> <laughs> uh part of me is actually sad i'm uh, yeah the circus is leaving town man i know this is a nice thing for us to be able to just like talk about at the end of every episode i mean what are we gonna do now we're just gonna say bye yeah it was a natural fade out yeah <laughs> it starts right now there's a way i was before All right. Uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, this was a this was a fun episode to have Kelly on. If you enjoyed this episode, please go to Expanded Roster. Um, please consider supporting it in any way that you possibly can when they get started up. Um, just kind of mess yourself in in that Twitter circle, and you'll really see what's going on. See all the awesome work that they're doing. And yeah, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, if you want to pitch Expanded Roster, and you don't know how we'll we'll link you we'll be the intermediary there (laughs) (laughs) we'll be back next week hopefully mlb will do better (laughs) (laughs) i think i feel like that's like the motto of our podcast like do better mlb (laughs) uh thanks everyone for listening thanks for listening y'all